welcome to the latest Sounds of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jonas Dodu. So Jonas is a founder of Speedworks Training, a company which helps athletes improve their acceleration, top speed, and change of direction. In addition to that, he's worked under legends of the sprinting game, including Dan Pfaff and Stuart McMillan, and he consults for Premier League football players, rugby players, and a range of different elite athletes. Who better today to discuss acceleration on top speed than Jonas? So without further ado, it's time to welcome him onto the show. So Jonas, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a great year to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much, Jonas. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Okay, I'm a coach. I, I played rugby. Um, I was decent at rugby, but broken early. So uh, I guess 17 years ago, I decided midway through my degree that I wanted to coach. I wanted to learn about sports therapy. Um, I, I wanted to coach rugby players to run faster. I searched, I couldn't find anyone to really teach me about speed for rugby, like the true essence of it. Everyone was doing conditioning for rugby. Everyone was doing some running drills and then just playing rugby. And so I searched the world. I found a great coach. I learned under that coach. I copied everything he did. Um, he ended up being one of the best coaches in the world and coming to the UK. I got to follow him for four years. Um, I was his apprentice. My wife at the time, an ex-Olympian, was also his apprentice. And um, and she found me and, and took me and made me her husband. That's the story I tell the world. Uh, um, <laughs> You're a passenger I, for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, no, I'm, I'm telling a lie. I bugged her and bugged her and bugged her until she was bothered enough to, to get with me. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a coach. Uh, I turned into an athletics coach and found some kids and coached them for six years, eight years. And they were all from the same catchment area in North London. And they all ended up being Olympians, Olympic medalists, world medalists, some of the best sprinters in Europe still right now. Um, I consulted with rugby until uh, from, from 2012 um, and, and got to work with some really good rugby boys and good girls and, and followed them on their path. They became great internationals, Lions, um, and um, international level at men's and women's. Um, and then I put, pushed my attention more towards football. And I've been probably working mainly in, in football, beyond working with England Rugby now and, and, and Leicester Tigers. We've just started with them again recently this year. Most of my work right now is in, in, in professional football. But professional football code, so... In the UK, of course, the Prem, we've got a few teams we work with, four or five teams in the Prem, a few academies, uh, a few in the Bundesliga, uh, one Dutch team that I'm coming to visit soon. Um, but NFL, Aussie rules, rugby league in Australia. So like football codes, we, we have now a bit more uh, cricket, a bit more court sports and tennis and some basketball, um, but it's all the same stuff. We're, I'm doing all the same stuff. We've developed a an AI-based app where we take in a video. You can use an iPhone or GoPro um, and we get really, really good data like you was in a lab, but you just can do it on the field. You can do it in the clinic. You can do it on the basketball court. And rather than speed being mythical, like it has been for so long, I guess my gift is that I've spent enough time watching people run fast I've had enough questions from coaches who recognize that my coaching eye is pretty good. I can't spell. I'm very dyslexic, but I can see movement very, very well. I think that's the balance in my in my brain. Um, I see shapes and I memorize shapes really well. Um, 
and I understand cause and effect really well. When people talk about running technique, you talk to 10 different coaches, they could be talking about the same thing, but 10 different ways. That can be pretty confusing. Um, they could talk about 10 different things in the running, but there's only two or three things to focus on because they're the causes. And if you address the causes, the other seven go away. Um, and so I've spent most of my life, like the past 17 years, sorting out those puzzles. I love puzzles and um, have created an app where we do all the work for you. You just have to put down your phone, measure out some cones, measure your person run uh, or record your person run, upload the video, and we'll give you very detailed, but also very simple video and PDF reports. And what this is doing for coaches and therapists from all sports is recognizing, yes, your sport is unique. Your, your um, central midfielder moves a bit differently to your, to your wide players and they move differently to running backs and, and, and wide receivers who might look, move differently to scrum halves and, and um, attacking forwards. Everyone's sport has nuances, but generally two arms, two legs, gravity, humans, um, A to B, acceleration, maintenance, top speed, braking, change of direction, all generally the same. Okay, the nuance of the ball, the rules, the context, the situation, if you're allowed to pass forwards, okay, the rules will, will make your sport feel very unique. But We've measured um, some of the fastest and heaviest players in NFL, in in rugby, in AFL, um, in cricket, in Premiership football at Prem level, academy level, men's, women's levels, and there's far more um, common denominators that differentiate good and poor performers, that differ differentiate healthy and, uh, and and unhealthy athletes. There are far more common denominators across the different groups player groups and sporting groups than most people think. And um, so I guess the past two years, uh, so to, to go on my story, COVID hit me, I stopped coaching track. I focused on building this app and building my, my database, working with teams around the world. And um, I guess we're now at a point of three years later where we have a very consistent process. We have clients from all the leagues um, and we are really confident that your sport isn't as unique as you think it really is. Um, and I said two arm, two legs. I used to help coach Johnny Peacock. He's officially one and a half legs. I've, I've helped some, some, amps, some above the knee amps. So you could call them one and a third legs, but physics is physics. And um, the reality is, I think if we drop our egos and our, and our time spent in the trenches in our sport, we take a step back like all physios, like all biomechanists have to do, you take a step back and think about functional biology and functional biomechanics. You just think about the, the reality of the, the human being, then the athlete, then the sports person. If you go in that direction, you think about underpinning physical properties, underpinning physics, then you think biomechanics, then you think sports specific. If you always go in that order, you have a, I guess, a lens that you can look at any position, any skill, any movement, any sport, and still come back to some common fundamentals that, that we try to illustrate through our, our education and through the, the work we do with our clients. Absolutely excellent. So we're going to get into a little bit of that now. Um, and obviously, we could go on about all of the intricacies of all the different uh, types of speed and all the things that underpin it. 
but I want to keep it a little bit shorter than like the 10 hour lecture that you could obviously give on it. Yeah. Um, so before we, before we get into like some of the, the physiological stuff, can you give us a, a quick definition of uh, acceleration of top speed and why they are different? Okay. Okay. Fine. Uh, acceleration, you're generally coming from a dead start or a slow start. You're walking, you're jogging before you go. Um, you need to really create momentum really quick, right? So if I'm from a static start, my first push off might get me to three or four meters per second, just, just right there. And then my next push off might get me to five and then to six and then maybe to six and a half. So the amount of speed I can increase reduces. So my acceleration is really going from nothing to something. And what's that change? How much is that change? Whereas by the time I get to, so let me talk about this even clearer. Acceleration is all about going forwards. So it's all about producing horizontal force. JB Marin's done lots of great work in this and, and different algorithms that help you start to understand the difference between acceleration ability and max velocity. But essentially acceleration is about going forwards, projecting yourself forwards. Generally, you have a, a deeper hip, more knee bend. Why? So that you can jump out of each bend. It's like a squat. Each step is like a squat. You're landing in a bent knee, bent hip, so you can extend. Um, transitions about going from prioritizing on horizontal force to starting to become more vertical. If you don't transition your hips, you can't see the ball. You can't change direction very well. Um, you can't create quicker and more elastic ground contacts because your knees are still bent. If you think about slow stretch shortening cycle movements, standing long jump, box jumps, broad jumps, all of those kind of things, repeated squat jumps, these are all very knee quad dominant, big range of motion activities that all are very similar to the action of early acceleration. But already after five steps, your hips are a bit higher. Your knees are a bit longer. Maybe they're more like a half squat. Uh, maybe they're more, um, there's more, there's less yielding on the ground. There's, there's more reliance on the ankle being involved to recycle some energy. So transitioning is really important to get your hips a bit higher and allow yourself to get in front more and be a bit more prepared for the ground. And upright running really is about maintenance. You're maintaining the momentum you created in your acceleration. It's easier to maintain if you transition your hips to a high enough position so that your leg can swing all the way under you and be relatively straight. It's not going to be truly straight, but relatively straight. Um, where if you've done a good job in your acceleration, creating enough horizontal, a good job in your transition, getting your hips into the right position while still continuing to create horizontal force, by the time you come upright, all you have to do is bounce. All you have to do is be elastic and create vertical force because you've already got the horizontal momentum. And it's like skimming a stone on water. Skimming a stone on water is all about the swing of the arm to give it the horizontal force, the little flick of the wrist to make sure that that horizontal is tilted to create some vertical. And then the amount of bounces you get is really about how efficient you are in creating vertical. You've already got your horizontal. Now switch it. If you don't do a good job in the beginning, if you keep your hips too low in the middle, then when you get to your upright running, you're still trying or stuck in creating horizontal force as a priority. And then you get stuck in backside mechanics. You get stuck in third gear, maybe fourth. You don't go to fifth gear and your running economy is really poor. 
So what I mean by that is um, the good athletes, the, the players I've, I've coached for long enough during the preseason, during off-season, during running conditioning, it's really clear for them. If we are doing three sets of five 100 metres at around 16 second pace, um, 75 or 60 second rolling clock. So you run 15, you get 45 off, right? You do it back and back and back. You have two to three minutes recovery in between the sets. That's a decent conditioning session for us. If you push off in your first three steps and allow your hips to transition organically, the last 70, 80 meters of that run feels bouncy and efficient. You'll, you'll be blowing still. You'll still get lactic in your bum, still get lactic in your legs, but you feel like you're rolling downhill. If, because you're lazy or you don't know yet, or you, you just, you, you haven't got attention to detail and your first three steps are just falling and you just transition into, into a poor position, it feels like you're running uphill. And so it's, it's a really simple um, solution for a lot of players. I'm Speedworks. We're all about speed. But actually in team sports, we have just as much or maybe more impact on repeat speed and running economy. Just being efficient in your running strides. So I work with rugby guys, big heavy forwards, 140 kilos, just getting them to make sense of what it feels to be bouncy, what it means to have their legs in front, what it means to be efficient in upright running changes the whole game for them. They do their kick sprints, they do their repeat sprints and they're like, they, they just can't believe it. So even though we're talking about speed and, and your question came from acceleration, go forwards, transition, get yourself more upright, max velocity or just upright running because it can be 80% velocity, steady state running. The, the question is, are you efficient and bouncy using your tendons, using your ligaments, stacking your joints and using your reflexes to reposition your legs? Or are you stuck in the ground with low hips with big push off the back? Are you running in upright running with concentric being your driver? Or do you get some elastic? Elastic is free. Elastic is recycling. Um, so I went off on a tangent, but essentially acceleration, go forwards. It's all about slow SSC. It's all about power output from a bent to a straight leg. Whereas upright running is really more about bouncing. It's more about being elastic. It's more about loading all three joints let's call it your fourth joint being your trunk trunk hip ankle knee and creating system stiffness and reflexive um thigh exchange so that you can stay in front of yourself and, and bounce and roll downhill as opposed to trudge up the sand sand dune all right if you're doing your fitness work i'd rather roll downhill than run up a, a sand hill I think it's a, that's a great way of putting it. And it, it definitely interests me to, to go into some of that physiology. But um, you kind of explained like the, the force element of the acceleration there and like the elastic element of the, the top end. I'm interested to hear how athletes can train that, right? So mm. let's say, um, let's take acceleration as like the, the first uh, part of that. How can athletes train their acceleration to be better? Easiest way to train any of those things is to do it in reality, right? So if you want to get better acceleration, accelerate. If I want to get better at the first four or five steps, I'll, I'm going to pull a heavy sled. I use exogenies. We sell them on our website. Um, and uh, But heavy sled, pull a tire, run up a hill, 
if I break down my acceleration into early and mid acceleration, early being zero to five, mid being five to 10 or five to 15, the first three steps is easiest to improve by JB's works, really clear, pull something heavy. 60, 70, 80% of your body weight is really my maxes. JB will go even higher. Um, and learn how to orientate. So make your forces in a direction, orientate, direct your forces forwards, orientate large forces. So that's the first priority. Orientate large forces really helps you with early acceleration. But I don't want to... Um, it's not just about large forces. It's about large forces in a short amount of time. So although we want to orientate large forces, so pull a heavy sled, make big stride lengths, project yourself forward. We want to, at the end of that opening the scissor, if you, if you, if you consider your legs to be a scissor, if as we're pushing against the ground, we're opening our legs, we also need to snap them back and close the scissor. If, but a lot of people, when pulling something heavy, will open their scissor and just let their foot drop like they're doing a lunge. And then it becomes a really slow ground contact. And quite frankly, it might be good for conditioning because you're really emphasizing the push. It might help work on ankle mobility because your foot lands flat with a vertical shin and you have to roll your shin over it. But it doesn't really transfer very well to making improvements in a short amount of time. You're, under, you're building underpinning physical qualities. But in my mind, when I make a big shape, I want to teach projection and switching at the same time. Push, make a big shape, attack back. So you've got pretension. Pretension ramps up your force, your force curve. It spikes it and allows you to pro produce the next projection, the next step faster and more explosively. It then also means that you're combining the need to create large forces as well as recycle them with the ankle very early. And if you can create those habits in early acceleration, they transition, they, they allow you to transition smoothly and get into your upright running organically. So to work on acceleration, I pull heavy things. I pull heavy things and start to teach people how to use their bum before their back. And a, a proper way of talking about that is proximal to distal extension pattern, right? And the difference would be if I'm doing a good morning with a bar and I hinge forward, what generally initiates me to stand back up is throwing my head and my shoulder back, opening my diaphragm and using my back before my bum to initiate the hinge. If I'm really good deadlifter, I'm really good good morning and I've got great trunk discipline, this is an important term, trunk discipline, maybe I won't initiate with my back. Maybe I'll hinge with my hip pressing forwards first. But for most people, a good morning is about standing up, initiating with the back. That's what a lot of people might do in acceleration. And that's the opposite to what being efficient is. What you really want to do is to unfold from your deep angle. You want your hip to press you forwards. And you just want your head to go forwards. And you unfold in this direction as opposed to unfold this way. And guess what? If you unfold in this direction, you go forwards. If you unfold up, you pop up. So if I'm working on acceleration, I want to pull heavy things. I want to work on slow SSC, slow stretch shortening cycle, uh, jumps and plyos with deeper knee bend. And I want to work on using my bum as my driver. 
not my back. There's a word called Lombard's paradox. And Lombard's paradox is one where you use your hip to be the driver of knee extension. And it's really difficult to show you this without, to explain this without showing you, but I'm going to try. Um, if you're, imagine someone is pushing a prowler and they've just put their front foot down, so they're about to extend. Research, and clearly quad, quad dominance is useful in slow SSC movements, useful in pushing a prowler. But when we're over-dominant in our quads, we tend to drop our shin a lot during that contact, roll it forward. Some people are really promoting this as an important factor. We tend to roll our shin. And we tend to, when we finish rolling our shin, push our knee backwards to extend our knee. Does that make sense? If I put yeah. my foot on the ground, I'm, I'm pushing forwards. They roll it. I need to show you. I've got no shoes, but I need to show you. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible way of describing it. Let's see if you can see. Sorry, listeners. Sorry, listeners. Yeah, everyone's listening in the car in the morning. This is, uh, it's, this is great, great to watch, but uh, terrible to listen to. Okay, so. Just moving some chairs. There you go. You might have to edit this out, mate. Sorry. <laughs> More work. Cheers. So, knee extension, a lot of people put their foot down when they're pushing a prowler, drop their shin, drop their shin, and then when they're ready, push the knee backwards. Of course, that's knee extension. But what if you put your foot down, you've got good stability and co-contraction of quad and hamstring, and your shin has discipline not to move? Then all that happens is you push your hip forwards, and your knee still extends. Yeah. The difference is one is being extended purely by using the quad and, and having to relax the hamstring. And the other is the, I'll say that again. One is um, really quad dominant is the knee travels backwards the force isn't actually going into pushing the thing forwards. It feels very challenging and hard to do. And generally, the athlete's bum bobs up and down because your quad and your knee is a vertical muscle. It's a vertical joint. It pushes you up. And the other is still knee extension, but it's driven by the hip moving across a static knee, a static shin. It results in horizontal force. And it results in really nice co-contractions of the quad and the hamstrings together. It results in your bum being the driver and your back unfolding as a result. Whereas the other one very much results in your back unfolding because your knee didn't give you what it really needed to give you. And the hip doesn't have a stable base to extend off. The, another way of putting it is the hip won't extend if the shin is still moving. The hip will pause and slow down or weight down for a stable shin, then it can extend. It needs a foundation. So this term, bum before back, is my way of describing lumbar's paradox. Another way of talking about it is shin discipline and trunk discipline that enables you to push yourself forwards. 
And I tell you what, the, the guys who have patella problems, who have um, low, uh, distal hamstring issues, who have um, uh, who are locked in their ankles, maybe because they've got bony restrictions, surgeries, etc. They all feel far more because pain will always give you more information than a coach's feedback, right? It, it takes away pain. It makes them feel confident in using them, themselves in, in slow SSC exercises. We've got a range of drills that when they work on those drills, it, it acts as a bit of an analgesic because it's a bit of an isometric around the knee. And it just retrains the pattern of what hip, hip extension should really be. It should be co-contractions, hamstrings and quads working together to extend with your bum as the driver. So I've gone very deep into talking about it because that is the biggest um, movement pattern that if you can address on a regular basis has a dramatic effect to your transfer of your gym strength to on the field. Um, so going back to your first question, if I'm going to work on acceleration, I pull heavy things, I run up steep slopes, I bound, I, I, um, I push heavy things, I jump slow SSC, I throw med balls, I do everything that the, that should be in all the textbooks. I just coach it the way I think it should be coached. That has a transference of, of more efficient force production. It feels better for the athlete and it teaches the, the joints, which one should be moving, which one should be stable. Shin discipline, trunk discipline, bum before back. Absolutely excellent. And I'm, I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to ask the next question because you've just done that so well. But same question for top speed. Um, how, would, how are athletes going to go about training their top speed? Because obviously you've just given a fantastic example of acceleration. Yeah. I'm interested to hear how that differs then from top speed because potentially for some athletes, those things might have a small amount of transfer, but for most probably not. So obviously they need two different methods of training. How, how does that look? Yeah, I think top speed has a lot of transfer for players because most of the coaching for max velocity is done at sub-maximal velocity. And most of the coaching for upright running, that's why I won't always say max V, I'll say upright running, right, or steady state. Most of that is teaching players how to position their pelvis efficiently so that they can have reflexive leg exchange, so they can bounce, right? And so... A lot of that happens in Bosch style reflex drills. Um, we call it a reflex drill or, or we call it a box A skip or just a range of drills where you get to do um, you know, call fist calls and boom booms, traditional track and field A skips, B skips. That, that kind of requirement of switching the limbs is important. And then we do it in a range of activities. You can just do it normally on the grass. We do it loaded with aqua bags. We do it off an uneven step and you have to, it's almost like an RSI, but it's, you know, one leg is popping up and down. Um, and, and I guess the, the most fundamental thing here is, I'll go top down. Uh, from the top down is being able to keep your shoulders just a tiny bit ahead of your hips. A lot of people want to get upright they open their diaphragm. Open your diaphragm, you lose length tension relationships in your hip flexors. You lose length tension relationships in your hip flexors. When you hit the ground, they don't bounce, your knee doesn't bounce back up reflexively. You have to consciously lift it. Um, if you lose length tension in your abs, then 
when you decide to extend against the ground, you're more likely to use your lumbar extensors more. You're more, li more likely to have what I call a banana back, right? If you have a banana back, that's helpful for creating a large horizontal impulse, but we're upright running. We don't need that large horizontal impulse in the second half of the push. We need that impulse early. And if we need impulse early, or if we need a sharp impulse, if we need to create large rates of force in a short amount of time in the early part of the contact, we don't have the, our muscle contractive, uh, co contractile units can't do it by themselves. It needs to be more elastic. It needs to be more tendon-based than just the, than a concentric action. So we don't have enough time to do it. So the only way we do it is by doing it before we hit the ground. So whereas in acceleration, even though it's still important to apply this concept in acceleration, but we can very much in your first three steps get away with landing. Uh, let's say I finish pushing with this leg, it comes forwards, landing here and pushing again, landing here and pushing again. Whereas after three steps, I better at toe off have my leg here and swing it down so I land with my foot moving backwards. If I was inefficient at toe off, my knee will be here. And then when I land, my foot will still be traveling forwards. I'm now breaking. I've got a weight, immortize a bit, then I can push. Yeah. Whereas upright running is the same thing. If I can get my leg in front, it doesn't have to be 90 degrees. My knee doesn't have to be all the way to the top. But if I can get my leg in front early, so it's not just about how high, it's about when. If when I finish pushing, I can push quick so I can get my leg in front early. I have time and space to swing my leg under. If I can swing my leg under, I'm creating half of the force I require in the air. I'm swinging my leg back. I have negative foot speed. I, um, they say whip from the hip. Ken Clark's got a really nice research paper talking about whip from the hip. Your hamstring is a hip is a is a whip. It's lengthening at one end and shortening at the other end. This is what an actual whip action is. If I can whip from the hip, I've created the force early. I then, in the early parts of the ground contact phase, I, I don't sink, I already extend. And towards the mid or late part, I can already rip, rip my foot off the ground and get ready for the next strike. So we talk about attacking the ground, whipping from the hip, as opposed to your knee lifts, your leg swings out, then you land, now you're breaking, then you sink, then you push long because you haven't been preparing early, then you're stuck behind yourself, and as a result, your leg comes forward late, then it swings out, then you sink. So it's all a function of RFD and pelvic control. If your pelvis and an anterior side can fight, can, can work well with the extension pattern, then and you can, and if you have good RFD and good elasticity, then you push quickly, and you can rip your foot forwards. If you lose your pelvis, if you go too anterior tilt with your pelvis, and let's say you've got good RFD, it doesn't matter. You push quickly, but the length tension is lost, and you recover slowly. So running mechanics is a function of postural control around the pelvis, lumbar pelvic control, all those things but also the ability to have elastic contacts, have pretension prior to the ground. And guess what? That's great for hamstring and calf health. Guess what? That's great for running fast. That's just great for so many things. Um, and so 
upright running is about being bouncy, being ready for the ground, controlling the collision with the ground, attacking the ground, um, and having the postural reflexes so that when you finish pushing, the floor is lava and you can get your foot off the ground. But notice that's when you finish pushing. It's not just hot stepping like you're doing high knees. It's actually explosive steps so that it's quick off the ground. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna reiterate this. Everyone knows you need to have a short ground contact time. Everyone doing an RSI is trying to be quick off the ground. I think coaches are coaching RSI in drop jumps wrong because the focus is actually force output. And you want that force to be quick, but first it's force output. So I would rather teach someone how to sequence the landing and the jump, spend a bit longer on the ground, and learn how to sequence so that they go high and gradually over time, learn how to jump earlier, jump before you land with jumping and height still as a priority and the sequencing being the, the, um, the goal. Whereas many people have the ground time as a priority. So athletes are hot stepping off the floor. They're tiptoeing, they're lifting off the floor. When we do drills, when we run, when we jump, I say that you push to punch. If you want to get off the floor, if you want to get your knee through high, you push the ground with a strong core and, and as a result, your knee comes through. This is a very important concept because for some people, they just lift. For some people, when they're jumping, they just hop step and they have the ground contact times that are desired, but the jump heights and as a result, the force output is poor. I'd rather switch it round. Get the timing right. Get the feeling of output because everything's about feelings. Coaches throw lots of cues at people. The only cue that athletes will remember and reiterate is going to be the feeling. Even if they say a word that you've said, they're already computing it into a feeling. So leave them with a feeling. What does it feel like to jump high? How do you jump faster? Okay, I still search for that same feeling. I just have to jump earlier. I jump before I land. This is a phrase we use a lot of the time. You don't wait to hit the ground, feel the compression and use that to wind up. You, in the air, already start to extend so that you might still compress on the ground, but you're compressing and decelerating ready to go up. It's the same with upright running. You don't wait to feel the ground, compress then push long. You attack the ground so that you're already creating stiffness, pre-tension prior, so that by the time you land, you bounce a bit and you go up. Long-winded summary, be bouncy in upright running, go forwards in acceleration. Perfect, perfect. So obviously I wanna bring all this together and there's been so much information that it's gonna be difficult to sum that all up in, in like a, a sentence or two, but I prefer to sum it up using like a, a training program or a, an example of a, a workout which you would then give athletes to to improve either their acceleration and or top speed so could you walk us through what a session with you might look like to to improve some of these aspects yeah okay um i i generally um it, so i'm going to talk about team sport athletes as opposed to elite sprinters so team sport athletes when we analyze them we throw their video into our ai it always generally for a large group of people 60 70 percent will tell me that their reactivity is the limiting factor generally the case. It doesn't mean they can't improve on their projection. It doesn't mean they can't change their switching. So those are the other two components. 
but react reactivity is often the issue in team sports across the board for most of most of the environments I've been in apart from the really smart guys um calf foot training only happens after calf and ankle injuries we're always developing the thighs using the bum to get bigger thighs quads hamstring always developing it but when it comes to the ankle it's an afterthought whereas the ankle is where you get to recycle energy and so for me if i'm with a team and i'm doing some kind of speed training twice a week I would, even on an acceleration day for at least for the first 12 weeks, I would still start my warm up with upright drills. Pogos, skips for height, straight leg scissors, bent leg scissors, scissors into a run. Those are my staple exercises. And you'll see all the coaches that I've coached in the past or that I've mentored, these are their key exercises. And I've, taught, I've stolen these from the coaches I've been mentored by. I just coach them with my twist, what I've talked about already making sure your diaphragm stays closed. You push to punch, remain bouncy, keep your toes up. Yeah, those are my key things. Um, so if I'm doing an acceleration or max velocity session for the, at least for the accumulation in my early phases, both sessions will start with pogos, straight leg scissors, high knees turning into a run. Those simple drills. Then if I'm going into an acceleration day, I might bound a bit and then pull the exogeny, resisted runs, three-step drill, five-step drill, 10-meter runs, 15-meter runs, all contrasted by doing a few reps of resisted, a few reps unresisted. When we're doing unresisted runs, I generally start by saying, run how you normally run, so just let, just let loose. Then I might give contrasts of a cue for this next set, I want big shapes, big distances. I don't really care if it's not switchy right now. I just want them to create large forces and know the end of their bandwidth for force and for range and for distance. Other sets, I'm gonna cue low air time. So if you cue low air time, um, if you cue, especially if you start by cueing big shapes and big projection, one way of doing it is by increasing your air time. You go up a bit more so you have time and space to, to feel comfortable creating those ranges. So my next set, I'm gonna cue low air time. And even if I'm cueing, I'm not talking about projection, there's a potentiation effect. There's a, a, there's a roll on from the previous set. So now they're gonna still have decent projections, but they're probably gonna reduce their angle, orientate themselves better. They have less air time. So at least in their first set, if they stumble, by this in the first rep the second rep they're going to switch their legs a bit better they're going to attack the ground because they have no time so all i'm doing here is going two sides of the spectrum one is more about distance and force the other one is going to increase leg speed and increase pretension because i've basically said reduce air time i could say attack back i could say short ground contacts i could say switch faster but on a general case for a new group that I, I don't want paralysis for analysis, where I want the speeds and the forces to remain high, I'm going to give them those kind of cues because it's easy to conceptualize. Um, I start with upright drills because it gives them the stiffness and switching. I move to resisted running. I contrast with resisted running. I finish with some kind of acceleration game because generally they're going from my session into football or into rugby. 
So I, I would blend the two. If I'm working on upright running, it's far easier. I do my same drills, high knee bleeds, dribble bleeds, scissor bleeds, scissoring into a run. That's what I call a bleed. Any, any drill that turns into a run, it's a bleed. Um, I would run over wickets, ranging in heights, ranging in lengths, two or three reps. I'll do flying runs, flying tens, either from a hard acceleration, which is challenging, or from an easy build-up over a longer distance, which is easy. A hard acceleration into upright running is challenging because sometimes you get stuck in your pushing horizontal and you don't get your hips up. If you have, and let's say that's 20 meter build, but if you give them a bit longer to build into it and you just tell them to gradually get faster and faster, they can get their hips higher. It can be a bit more organic. It can be a bit more easy speed. Um, so really simple, really easy. If I have more time, and that's like if I've got 15 minutes before football or rugby, easy. If I have a dedicated speed session, I might start in the gym doing a range of isometric drills, a range of sprint specific drills, using the barbell, using boxes to um, lock into those positions, to make sense of those positions, to potentiate some of the joints and, and the muscles in those deeper angles um, or, or longer angles, deeper angles in acceleration or longer angles in upright running. Um, I might contrast some core squats, some some bot, some some rack squats, some ice, some Alex Natera isometrics with a range of different plyos. So I'm just potentiating everything inside. Um, um, and I might do some long lever hamstring work or some deep angle uh, ankle and soleus work, especially if there's injury history. I would throw med ball in various angles to create some pretension in the strike. And that's really, again, really supports upright running. Sometimes people are more backside or have limited switching because they can't create pretension in their abs. So I'm gonna do all of that. I'm basically thinking about all of the cues and feelings that I'm gonna want in the high intensity running session. And I'm using the gym to potentiate it. I'm using the gym exercise to cue and talk about it and make it clear for the athletes and create that shared language. So when I go outside, I don't really have to say much. And if I have to say anything, I refer to the drill we've done in the gym. Then by the time we've gone out, outside, I'm following the same kind of format I've already talked about in my short session. I'm probably doing a few more reps. I'm probably starting with more intensity, getting the quality done, and then doing some repeat sprints, repeat accelerations, some game speed, it all depends where I am in the year, the, the, the group I, I'm with, but my progression is generally going to be the same. I use my warm up to activate, to, to embed and my cues and have a shared language. I use a few drills done well that increasing intensity so that they can feel the right positions and, fi and figure out how to reflexively hit them at speeds. Then I'm going to do some some of the real stuff, real accelerations, real max velocity runs or 90% runs, then I'm going to finish with something that is relevant. It might be repeat speed. It might be game speed. It might be, it might be trunk. Um, I might challenge the trunk and I might condition the trunk knowing that it was the limiting factor in the running session. So it will end based on whatever the next thing is and, and, and the, the type of athlete I'm working with, the context, the puzzle I'm solving 
but generally those three phases are what I do. If I've got 15 minutes, those are the three phases. If I've got 45 minutes, those are three phases. They just stretch or shrink depending on, on, on what's going on. Absolutely fantastic. So Jonas, massive thanks for your time, effort and wisdom. Um, where can people find a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, um, you can go to eat, sleep, train underscore on Twitter, or on Instagram, speedworks.training. There's one website. That's where coaches go for education. That's where clients go for booking. Speedsolutions.training is where you go to, to purchase um, access to the AI, to the video analysis. All you need is a mobile phone, tripod, and five yellow cones. That's all you need. You sign up, we'll give you the information. You can record in your environments and you, you can share in our wisdom. Absolutely fantastic. Jonas, massive thanks for today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Jonas for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of sports science lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get your hands on some great sports science information, you can hit the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time and you can get into the Coach Academy completely for free for the next seven days. And of course, every time you complete one of these courses, you get a certificate of completion, which means you can prove your ongoing education. In addition to that, it'd be fantastic if you enjoyed today's podcast, if you could recommend it to a coach, a colleague, an athlete or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. So again, a massive thanks from me, a massive honor of Sports Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.